Good afternoon. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. Yesterday, the world celebrated the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and with that, the fall of a system that was responsible for some 100 million murders and the systematic abuse of civil and political uh, rights around the world. The crimes of communism are well documented, and uh, the fall of socialism led to a huge increase in freedom around the world. Yet today, in Venezuela, President Hugo Chavez has set out to implement 20th century socialism and to export it to other countries in the region. In doing so, a clear and disturbing pattern has emerged. The violation of political, civil, and economic uh, freedom has become commonplace, and much as was the case with socialism during the, the Cold War, outside observers have too often uh, minimized those abuses, citing the regime's aims to help the poor and its supposed widespread legitimacy. Today we'll hear about uh, how Chavez's revolution has used the techniques of authoritarianism to undermine uh, democracy and control uh, electoral outcomes. Astoundingly, we'll also hear about how, despite having received more than $800 billion in the 10 years that Chavez has been in power, the government has little to show for its social policies and its basic services. Indeed, uh, just recently, uh, it started to ration electricity and water usage. As the domestic situation worsens, Chavez has become uh, even more radical in implementing his, his agenda, concentrating ever more power in his hands and, and uh, ruling in arbitrary ways. It's hard to describe the political atmosphere in Venezuela to those who have not uh, been there. I was there last in May, and I have to admit that I, I wasn't prepared for the level and quality of government propaganda. There are five or six... 24-hour television stations uh, with uh, all sorts of shows, news programs, talk shows, children's shows, music videos, all very, very well done, very slick, uh, high-quality productions. But it's not just uh, government propaganda. It's Marxism uh, through and through, and the espousal of hatred, class hatred and hatred of groups that supposedly uh, don't agree with the the revolution, enemies of the revolution, and the promotion, believe it or not, of uh, the creation of a new socialist man. Intolerance and vilification is what characterizes the, uh, the attitudes of the, of the government and its conduct toward those who dare to disagree with it. As Peruvian uh, novelist Mario Vargas Llosa said uh, the policy is very much one that encourages people to more effectively hate certain groups. I describe this, this background uh, simply to give the context to what we will be hearing about today, but the background and the actual outcomes of Chavez's uh, revolution matter not just to the 26 million uh, Venezuelans who live in the country, but also to the, to, to the millions more in the region uh, especially those who live under governments who have become clients of Venezuela and are following uh, the Venezuelan model of using the trappings of democracy to consolidate authoritarianism. But let me, uh, 
Let me introduce our, our speaker so that she can describe in more detail the reality of Venezuela today. And I'm very pleased to have her with us, Maria Corino, Corina Machado, who is one of the leading uh, pro-democracy advocates of Venezuela. She is a co-founder and uh, the president of SUMATE, uh, Civil Society Organization, that has been very active for many years in all sorts of initiatives. In 2003, SUMATE led a petition drive for the constitutional uh, presidential recall of President Hugo Chavez. And subsequent to that, uh, has been involved in all sorts of initiatives, which she might describe uh, today in educating the public about what's really going on in terms of uh, democracy in Venezuela. She has faced conspiracy charges for the work that she has done, threats uh, to put her in jail. In 2005, uh, she met with George Bush in the Oval Office. The foreign minister of Venezuela at the time called that meeting a provocation, and the interior minister accused her of being a puppet of the CIA, and uh, that kind of accusation uh, has become since then more and more commonplace to anybody who uh, criticizes the government. So uh, please help me welcome Maria Corina Machado. It's an honor and a challenge. I'm very grateful because I see here faces of people that know so much and love so much Venezuela that I hope that this will end up being uh, a conversation. So I'll start and I'll promise I'll go as fast as possible because I have tons of information. Ian insisted that I had to, to start with uh, the arguments about democracy and, no, and don't go directly to the um, performance in political social policies. So we managed to put both things together. So this is a huge challenge for me. I hope you bear it. <laughs> so, well, basically I would like to, to address three main uh, messages here. The way elections are being used in Venezuela as a way to regain legitimacy, legitimacy of origin, while meanwhile this dismantling of democratic institutions is taking place. Secondly, how promises, and I want to insist of these promises of social justice, popular sovereignty, or any other argument, I believe, are not valid to justify this process of destroying democratic institutions. And finally, Let's address the issue of how successful or unsuccessful has been these policies regarding the, the poorest sectors of our country. So, well, a lot of people say, I, I actually was in a conference last week at, at Yale University, and, you know, this French girl student stood up and said, how can you say that there's a problem with Venezuelan democracy if you have elections every year? So well, I, I said, actually, it's not every year because it's 1.8 times a year. We've had 18 elections in the last 10 years. And uh, if the, the electoral agenda uh, is respected, we would have nine elections in the next 10 years. So we do have a lot of elections. So what's the strategy? Why? What's useful? Well, how come? And, and I think that there are elements that explain this very clearly. First of all, as I mentioned before, it's a way to regain legitimacy. Legitimacy that's been lost by the government while he, the administration does not respect uh, democratic pr practices and principles, but a way to regain it through 
legitimacy of origin. The, the second argument or reason, it's because it's a way to maintain a country permanently polarized. And that's very difficult to reverse and, and through elections that could be even deepened. Third, of course, it is also a way to concentrate public opinion and debate on electoral and political issues and not social and economic, economic outcomes. Fourth, it's, uh, it's a masquerade, as I say, to, to produce huge transferences of resources. This violates clearly our constitution and our electoral laws, but it's, it takes place every time there's an electoral process. And finally, it also promotes uh, the rearrangement, the, the continuous uh, uh, competition among um, internal cadres of the officialism. Well, but this strategy is very risky because you can lose elections, can't you? Elections can be lost. If you're basing all your legitimacy in this strategy, what happens if you lose elections? Well, in order to prevent that from happening, you have to control the electoral process. And it has been done in Venezuela through three main strategies. Uh, the first one is to through controlling the electoral council and the way elections are designed and administered. The second strategy is through propaganda and the way campaigns are uh, put in place through very unfair and illegal uh, uses of, of resources and, and intimidation of the media. And third, probably the most worrying dimension for me is intimidation. The way Venezuelan society is being terrified at all levels. These three things can only be done in a democracy as if you control all state powers. And that's uh, a process that's been put in place and has been put in place during the last decade in, in our country. So now let's concentrate a little bit in the, those three main issues that I put here. First, let's talk about how the electoral process has been uh, controlled uh, during this, this uh, last decade. Um, uh, as you know, the Electoral Council is directed by five people, four out of those five are clearly publicly accepted as loyal to the government. And none one decision has been taken uh, in a proportion that it's less than four votes in favor of the government intentions. Um, this group that has, had changed, has changed in, in their names, but not in that proportion, um, has, has put in place five main areas or five main strategies. First is the automatization of the vote. Venezuela has the most automatized electoral process in the country, in the world. Not only using voting machines, but also we have something that as far as, I, as we know, nobody, uh, no other country has, which is fingerprint machines, such as the one that you find in the U.S. immigration polls, stations when you arrive to, to these countries' airports, in which citizens have to put their all their fingerprints, show their ID, and immediately go to another machine in order to vote. Uh, the second uh, strategy has been what we call identification of voters. Um, several databases, well, I'll talk later about the Tascon list, have been published and distributed and sell. You can, you can buy it in the streets in which all the names of the Venezuelan electors and how they behave politically is stated there. And uh, people have that feeling that every single voter uh, behavior is being monitored and followed. Thirdly, the way uh, the electoral registry has increased and has 
um, grow in, in, in the last uh, seven years. It has grown 52%, and it, the last audit process took place in the year 2003. From then on, the uh, Electoral Council has denied and has not uh, complied with the law that establishes that it should uh, deliver copies of all the electoral registry with the addresses to the to all political parties. They have not done that three, since the year 2003. Fourth, the standards, norms, and regulations. They are changed from election to election, sometimes the day of the election, while the process is taking place. And finally, something very troubling, the way the Plan República, which is the operative uh, of the armed forces, the operations of the armed forces that takes care of, of caring uh, for the security of uh, the electoral processes, then uh, election to election is getting more and more involved in a political way uh, and as, as elections take place. Uh, I won't stop here uh, to address these issues and... Yeah, it would be hard to read them. Uh, I put them in that position in order for people to not to read them. <laughs> no, but the fact is that I mention here those milestones which we believe are the most critical events that took place along these last years in order to reduce transparency in the electoral process. When those events took place, we did not realize uh, how they were connected and how critical they were in terms of reducing transparency and, uh, uh, and in, in the process. Uh, I just mentioned, as I said before, I was going to address the Lista Tacón because I do think that's an event that divides Venezuelan history in before and after. Uh, when 3.7 million people signed in order to, to have their right for a constitutional recall referendum take place, uh, only 2.4 were required. Most of these uh, signatures were considered not valid by the Electoral Council. And uh, as you know, President Chavez ordered in a letter sent to the Electoral Council on January the 30th, 2004, that all copies of these petition forms were given, photocopies of these petition forms, to a member of the National Assembly, Mr. Luis Tascón. Mr. Luis Tascón took all those, that information and he copied that, names and IDs, on a web page that was subsequently used by all Venezuelan ministries and public companies and institutions to fire those public employees that had signed. Um, many people that had received or were receiving uh, social benefits actually were stopped uh, getting them, people that had companies that were contractor, contractors, contractors to, the, to the government had their relations also stopped. Three months later, President Chavez came on TV and said, look, I realize that many people are complaining and suffering because of this uh, Tascon list, so we're going to give them the opportunity to change that situation. And what we're going to do is that we are ordering the Electoral Council to, to open places in which people can come and say that they regret having signed and take out their names. So, as you can imagine, so much for Venezuelan dignity when that day came. Actually, I met a young man from the Vargas state after this happened, and, and his name was Javier, and he told me, look, Maria Corina, I had to choose between seeing myself, my eyes in the mirror, or, say, or watching my kids on their eyes. 
And I decided to look for the second because I could not tell my kids that they were going to lose their house or their school. So actually this happened, son los reparos, in the year 2004 in May. A lot of people came, over 100,000 people came and took their signatures out. But more came to say that they had signed, their signatures were not considered valid until that day, and uh, they insisted that they wanted to be in that list. And that's how the referendum took place. Many other things happened along the way. Finally, this year, a new electoral law was um, enacted in, the year, in July uh, that uh, makes all these elements that we have denounced as illegal previously took place, now they are legal. And uh, it creates, of course, an even higher barrier uh, to, to overcome in order to have clean and fair elections in, in Venezuela. Um, the second element that I mentioned before is unfair advantages. And uh, just to give you an example, in the last electoral process that we had in February 15, it was a 70-day campaign um, for the amendment of the Constitution in order to have indefinite re-election. President Chavez was on average 3.03 day, hours a day on TV during those 70 hours. But uh, it's not like a regular TV program. Um, I'm sure some of you have heard of what a cadena, a chain, is. You know, it's, it's tough for, for us to explain the international community what it means that every single public and TV radio station, TV and radio station, have to broadcast simultaneously an official message. There have been 1,924 chains in the last 10 years. Uh, the record is uh, 8.5 hours long, one, one chain that took place in Venezuela. So in addition to this, uh, some figures came out from El Bloque de Prensa Venezolana yesterday uh, that accounted for 731 media owned by the government, 238 radio stations, 28 TV stations, 340 newspapers, 125 web pages. So imagine the, the amount of information that can be imposed through these actions. And thirdly, this is the most serious and painful for, for me to address as a, as a Venezuelan, and is what we call the cycle of political fear. And uh, I'll try to explain it really fast, how we believe it works. You have a society that has certain political preferences, some percentage, proportion that supports the government, some rejects, some is indifferent. And then you put political fear in that society, which means making people believe that everything they say or do that is against the government intentions will carry out a punishment. They will be punished if they do that. The next thing that happens is that you carry out opinion polls done door to door. Imagine you are a young woman that lives in Cabruta, Estado Huarico, and somebody knocks your door of your house, or El 23 de Enero, and Carapita, whatever. And you are there with your family, and they ask you what you feel about health. It's a disaster. Security is horrible. And so on. what do you feel about President Chavez? I love him. And uh, it, it is a proportion of, of the population that clearly is not willing to say on polls, done home, door to door, what they truly feel. And polls do carry out a certain degree of alteration because of fear. The effect this creates is that there's a matrix of opinion that is always bigger 
that the government will the government candidate will win and the incentives are for people not to risk because if you say the government's going to win why should i vote against or even bother to vote but if in addition to that you create conditions in which the secrecy of the vote is questioned doesn't matter if it's secret or not what matters if the perception if people think that their vote is not secret Having the story I mentioned before, it's very hard that the outcome would be different than this one. And, I, and you ask me, you know, do people really believe that vote is secret or not? Well, uh, Alfredo Keller carried out a poll starting the, the first trimester of this year, and 39% of Venezuelans said the vote is not secret. The government would actually know how they voted. I, I, I always mention exp an experience I had In February, just a week before the, the last election, I was in El Sector La Candelaria in El Estado Cojedes, a very, very poor rural area. And I was in a small meeting when I was going out, about 20 people, a young guy grabs me and said, look, Maricorina, I need to talk to you. And say, well, well, Rafael, what's going on? And he said, we just found out how the government is going to know how we're going to vote next Sunday. And I say, how? And he said, with the satellite the Chinese satellite that had been launched a year before. And, and I didn't know if I should laugh or cry. Believe me, I ended up crying all the way back home because I spent 15 minutes explaining to Rafael that that was impossible from a technical point of view. But when I was leaving, he said, they know better than you. So, you know, when I got to Caracas, I had an interview with Nelson Bocoranda, whose program had not been closed down by then on the radio, and uh, I told him what happened to me that morning, and he said, oh, my God, during the last weeks, I've been wondering why on the VTV, the national TV station, every other ad is on the satellite, the satellite, the satellite, the satellite. So, you know, there's a lot of people that truly have reasons to fear for that, because if you see the numbers, 28% of Venezuelan electorate are either public employees, or people that receive pensions. Another story regarding pensioners. That day, that February 15th in, in the evening, I was moving along the centers in Caracas in which... Moving around the places where we were receiving the tally sheets and the announces of the electoral process. And one volunteer grabs me again, and she said, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you what happened to me this morning. And I said, Ophelia, what happened? I said, well, as you know, I'm a pensioner of the Banco Central. I used to work there. Um, I got a call this morning. They asked for me. And I said, yes, it's me. And I said, you used to work. You have, you have a pension from the Ministry of Finance. And she said, yes. And they said, well, you better go and vote in favor of the amendment or else you will lose your pension. And she said, Maria Corina, I'm a professional with a master's degree. I've been working as a summative volunteer for five years. I am against the amendment, and I believe that my vote is secret. But when I was voting this morning, my hand was trembling. And if this is this woman, imagine what all those other millions of Venezuela might be feeling. So, nevertheless, the results were only 1.1 million votes in favor, the difference in favor of the amendment. That uh, it's 
6.68% of the uh, uh, total electorate, which I think under these circumstances is incredibly positive because I am totally convinced that under free and fair elections, the result would have been a huge re-erection, uh, rejection to this process. And this is very important to know because we need to know that most Venezuelans share democratic values. We are under very tough conditions, but we share the huge majority of Venezuelans share democratic values. Uh, as I said before, and I won't stop here uh, too long, but this process could have been put in place because all other state powers permitted it. And in order to have that in place, you had to control them. And when you look back in this last 10 years, in red you will find those events, that, that main events that we believe were put in place to control the Constitution, to change the Constitution. In yellow, those that have to do with taking control of the, the judiciary. In green, the National Assembly. In blue, the electoral Council, and so on. So it all starts by changing the Constitution in order to have more time. Next step is taking control of the judiciary. Let me give you uh, uh, a fact. Uh, in the year 99, there were over 2,000 judges in all courts throughout Venezuela. Do you know how many are still under jobs out of door more than 2,000? Somebody willing to risk? Three. Three. So, you know, it, it went on. We had the court packing in the year 2004 with a new uh, elect, um, Supreme Court law. We've had many um, enabling, in, 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 enabling, enabling laws uh, which have given the government the possibility of to en enact 183 presidential decrees in 48 months. And step by step, the control of the political powers is complete. So of the, um, the powers of the state is complete. So, you know, when we stand here, we ask our friends in Ecuador, Bolivia, Nicaragua, no? which are, in which step are they standing right now? And is the slope the same or is it going faster? Because this is a recipe that's been repeated step by step using even the same, the same names. So it's not only the control of the public powers, but also the control of the institutions in the private sector, the media, civil society, church, unions, and political parties. The fact is that President Chavez was elected for a period of 60 months. He's been in power 429, and when he finishes his term, he would be in power 460. So I think that by this point, it's clear that we have here seen a strategy in which a strategy in which the objective of con having full control and, and staying in power indefinitely implies you have to give it a democratic facade, that you get that by 18 elections, and in order not to lose them, you have to control the electoral process. But the fact is that, as I said before, a lot of people say, well, yes, but the poor are doing better. I believe this is not an argument that justifies what we've seen so far, but moreover, even though Venezuela has received huge amounts of resources, the poor are not doing better. And we'll go through that fast. First of all, wait a second. I'm missing one, I'm missing one slide here. Hmm. 
I'll I probably have it hidden. Well, uh, the, far, the, first, uh, the first slide was a comparison of what the previous three governments had received in terms of public income and what this government has received. Through the most conservative sources, it's over $800 billion. $800 billion. It's more than the three previous governments together got. Uh, as you know, when President Chavez has arri arrived in power, oil was at $9 a barrel. It reached 140 last year. It's uh, around 80 at this moment. So what's happening in terms of government? Well, these are indicators from uh, the World Bank. Venezuela is last in, South, in, in Latin America, in accountability, in government effectiveness, in law enforcement, in corruption and regulations, and only second to Colombia in political stability. Regarding doing business rank, out of 181 countries, we are in the position 134 around the world. Uh, that's, that's how we moved from the year 2007 to 2008. And if you compare political stability with the doing business rank, we're not in a good position. What does this mean? Well, well, here it is. I was looking for, for this uh, graphic. Down there, you see the aggregate numbers, not only because of oil income, but because of, of uh, fiscal uh, sources. And as I say, this is the most conservative figures I found because actually nobody knows how much money has really received our country and our government. We, we don't even know how the budget is distributed. We don't even know how much oil we are selling. Um, the answer is, is it because of volume? No, it's because of prices. And actually, what's really troublesome is that the amount of uh, oil that's been exported, it's less that, much less in terms of volume than it was in the year 99. In the year 99, 2.5 million barrels a day estimated were exported. Today, we believe that because of the increase of the local um, consumption, uh, it's uh, only uh, 1.6 million barrels a day. Regarding foreign investment, well, that's a consequence of what we saw before. We've got a negative net foreign investment uh, of 3.7 billion in the year 2008. Regarding inflation, we have the highest inflation in the region, 32% last year, and purchasing power of a minimum salary arrived at 52%. So imagine what this means for the poorest in the country. Regarding social policies, um, yes, human development indexes show an improvement. It is an impressive improvement of four places from the year 2007, 2000, from the year 2006 to 2007. This was published two, two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I believe, uh, um, by the, the uh, Human Nations Development Program, yes. And uh, as you see, poverty has also declined. But if you go below these figures and we see how the GDP per capita has risen and we address the issue of the income elasticity of power reduction uh, and compare it to international standards, it is accepted by all economists, that that's a proportion of two to one. I mean, poverty should decrease two points for every increase in one point in GDP. In Venezuela, in this period, um, poverty has only decreased in a proportion of one to one. So it's half what the international standards would have expected for an oil boom. 
And if you take away the elements of, uh, here is how the GDP has grown in, in the last years. Uh, if you can take away from the Human Development Index the component that is uh, um, based on the increase of the GDP, then you will see a total different situation, which is what I'm going to address now. Regarding the Gini index, which is uh, a way in which inequity is measured, uh, actually it, it, uh, it went worse from 2000 to year 2000 to 2005, and then it improved a little bit, but it's still very close to what it was 10 years ago in terms of inequality. And uh, as I say, going behind the human development indexes, to the true elements that we want to, to address, it's really troublesome to see how underweight babies have increased from the year 99 to 2006 from 8.4 to 9.1, just to give you some elements of, 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 uh, of these sources. Household without running water went from 7.2 to 9.4, and uh, infant mortality rate is decreasing, yes, exactly at the same page that it was doing before. Uh, this process started and well below what other countries in Latin America are doing at this moment. Uh, so as you can see, uh, even going through the same indicators, the reality is totally different. In employment, uh, this is a very conservative uh, information and I'm showing you here. It's, uh, it's done by Conindustria and it shows how a private Employment in industry has decreased um, in this last decade in 25%, but the small industry has increased in 46%. Uh, last week, there was a report uh, presented also by Mariol Gajirona for an Industria in which the estimate is that 2 million employments have been lost in the last decade in, in Venezuela, 2 million posts. Regarding housing, this is the deficit with, um, that I'm uh, measuring here, and uh, the red line is the, as, as it says, uh, the, the, per, the, the, the percentage of the deficit that is being constructed yearly. So you can see how this comes down uh, in the last years. Last uh, week, a governor of República Dominicana in Montecristi announced that Venezuelan government is giving as a present 2,000 new homes to his uh, state. In Republica Dominicana. And probably here, safety is the worst issue that uh, has, is, is happening, the worst effect of these policies for Venezuelan quality of life. As you see, 10 years ago, uh, compared to Colombia, when the Colombian rate was 57 killings, murders a year for every 100,000 inhabitants, and Venezuela was 20. Today, Colombia is 34 and Venezuela is 52. We're talking of almost 15,000 Venezuelans killed a year. So education is another issue that has been uh, presented by a government, by a government, a big success. Uh, this is a report that was published last week using information from UCAB, from Consultores 21, from the Gobernación de Miranda, and from Primero Justicia. Um, it's estimated that there are 8.5 children below 18 years, 50, for, excuse me, 14 years in Venezuela, and 4 million are not in the formal system. Some of them are, yes, in the misiones, in the, in the different programs, but 
estimated 4 million out of the formal system. There is a deficit of 5,000 schools. 57% um, of the children do not receive in public schools food or any kind of nutrition, and it's, it is mandated by law. And if you see the infra infrastructure of public schools, 90% have huge problems. 35% don't have any kind of sport facility, and 37 of them, percent of them, their bathrooms simply do not work. And we have a 33% deficit in, in teachers. Regarding health, some information that just came out last week from La Federación Médica de Venezuela, um, only 28% of beds are in operation, operating conditions and only 120 of internal, uh, what do you say, intensive treatment beds that of 700 that should be needed, only 120 are in place. We have a huge uh, deficit of, of, of doctors, 43%, and health and maladies that had been eradicated are appearing. Malaria has risen in 94% since 1999, and dengue fever in 203. And, and I know this is a big issue nowadays in Washington, healthcare. Only 67% of Venezuelans have some kind of health um, uh, insurance, healthcare insurance. Um, what do Venezuelans feel about what's going on? These are numbers that just came out from uh, that analysis and, and datos that I'll show you here. The only um, element of public policies that has um, bigger approval rate than that, that re rejection still being still is education. Uh, it's 48.6 believe it's good. 48, 46.2 believe it's not working. And uh, it decreases through all along the different services in health, ambulatorios. I cannot read. That's very small, too. Oh, if you can convince them, confuse them. No. Uh, finally, uh, we, we arrived to insecurity in which 87.3% um, believe the government is doing a really bad job regarding security for Venezuelans. Um, this is a, the satisfaction with the president, own president's performance in these areas, and we can see uh, there's a big decline along this year. And, uh, and this is what the uh, people believe through using datos uh, information, it, what the government um, is doing in materia de inseguridad personal, 60% uh, say it's working very little or doing nothing. Uh, 54 in corruption, 52 in unemployment, 47 uh, um, on, how do you say, desabastecimiento? Shortages of basically food. It, 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 it relates to food. Towards 27, that believes the government is, um, is, is working fine. And uh, finally, I want to address the issue of social tensions because certainly this is a way in which people start expressing its, its anger, its frustration, its pain. And uh, it's very impressive the way they have increased. This is only this year, how many protests has, has been taking place month by month. And uh, as we can see, it's uh, more than doubles what happened the year before. So just to conclude, um, in terms of our most main messages, uh, despite huge public revenues basically coming or almost exclusively from oil income in the past decade, Venezuelan citizens are not seeing the changes that they deserved 
to have a, a better life, quality of life. In particular, the poorest sector of our society are suffering from inefficiency, corruption, and bad policies. And, uh, and, and this means huge opportunity loss, huge opportunity loss that for many generations, I believe, we won't be able to, to recover. But uh, the last note has to be optimistic because I am. I believe that the months to come, the years to come, are going to be very hard. Most of us have um, grown accustomed to live under fear, and not only for political reasons. Now you see there are other reasons to be afraid of. Nevertheless, I believe that in these years, very positive and structural changes have happened. One, I believe that poverty has turned to be the crucial challenge accepted by all sectors, the crucial challenge that will be addressed in the new society we want to build. Second, I think citizens have been empowered. We are learning that living in a democracy means having rights and duties. And third, we are willing to work together among sectors to have that dream come true. And uh, as I always say, I believe when that happens, we'll be a better society and we'll be also better individuals. Thank you very much. Thank you, Maria Corina. We have time now for questions, so if you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone when you're called. Please identify yourself and your affiliation. We'll take a question right there. Right there, please. Yep. Hello. Uh, my name is Damian Merlin with Auto Reich Associates. Three rapid question. You mentioned the problem with the elections with automated machines and fingerprints. I'm just wondering if you could uh, explain what's so wrong with that. Uh, the intimidation of uh, candidates. How do you explain some opposition victories? And last, um, you've mentioned a lot of polls that show Chavez's lack of popularity, but you also mentioned the intimidation in conducting polls. How accurate do you think these polls are, and how are you able to get this information if with all the intimidation? Una y una. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Do you have like another half an hour? <laughs> no, just kidding. Well, um, I'll, I'll try to go really fast. Uh, um, I, I, I don't know if you're aware that uh, some months ago, the uh, Supreme Court in Germany decided to change the way elections are handled there and pro prohibit using automated machines. They're going back in Germany to manual voting. And the reason is because people don't understand technology. And the essence of electoral process is trust. And if you don't understand what's going on, probably you will not trust the results. And in this case, not only the, the, the fingerprint machines uh, are useless because the, they don't have the capacity of actual stopping one person that votes in different states from voting twice. And that's supposedly the reason. And even the norm says that if there's, somebody, there's a problem with somebody and their fingerprint machines pretend to stop it, after two minutes, they must be allowed to vote. So what is the use of having them there? There is a big reason. It drives people really scared, really scared. And actually, if you have them in line with the voting machines, those are, both of them are 
Computers. And computers, by definition, keep sequence of events. So theoretically, you would have the sequence of events and people put their names here, Peter, John, Mary, and then the sequence of how they voted. Party A, Party B, Party A, Party C. So if you could match them, theoretically, you would have the results. The CNE and Smartmatic said that was impossible because the voting machines have a thermal dispositive that destroyed the order. Well, actually, the, in November 23rd, 2005, the, for, for the first time, an auditing process was done to the Smartmatic machines. And in front of OAS and EU um, observers, there was done... And, and an essay, and 10 people came up and voted. After 10 minutes, the technician and the opposition said, you voted this way, you voted this way. It was proved that previous elections, the CNE could have learned how people have voted. Since then, we made a huge pressure, public pressure, pressure, and the system and the software is changed. And today we can say, technologically, vote is secret. But the problem is perceptions. The problem is perception. So, you know, these marmatic machines had just been bought in the Philippines, and they're going to be used for the first time in the Philippines. They're trying to be sold in Ghana, in Bolivia, and so on. So this is a model that works. Regarding intimidation and victories, well, some, in some cases, I think the government has underestimated, and probably the difference was so huge that the level of maneuver uh, of the difference was bigger than that. And also the opposition in those cases had better structure of defending the vote because we have to be totally clear here. It's not only what the government does, but what, you know, dissidents and people that want to live in democracy can do on, on, on the other side. And the fact is that we have to accept that we've done huge efforts. In Sumate, we've trained over 125,000 people, 33,000 last year in order to defend the vote throughout the country. But that's not enough. We believe that 15 to 25 percent of polling stations did not have any witness that was not on the government side. So things can happen if you if you don't. And uh, regarding the polls, just to give you a piece of information, in the in August 2006, during the same weekend, two polls were carried out. One was done door to door, that was done by Penn and Sean, and the other was done in the streets with the same. Um, stratification, so social economic stratification. Uh, the difference between them was 14 points in favor of the government of the one done door to door. And this is something that has been found also in research in Russia, Iran, Belarusia, in other countries in which you have intimidation. Uh, so why people or polling companies still do uh, door to door is cheaper. It's much cheaper, and that's the history they have, so that's a way they can maintain trends. Next question, right here in front. Yes, my name is Pet Kurovsky. I'm Petropolitan from Venezuela. Ian started presenting this uh, based on the celebration yesterday of the fall of the of the, of the wall, Berlin Wall. And the reason we celebrate it is because in this institution and all of us are convinced that the free individual person is better than a system where it's centralized government. In this case, you have spoken about the lost opportunity cost of this huge oil income. Most of us are convinced here that, that those losses would have occurred anyhow because the way we are centralizing our oil revenues in Venezuela. So there's no change. 
in the sense that what we are choosing is the one who is better going to be able to use that oil revenue on behalf of the people. So the contest is in terms of who cares most about the people, who is most sympathetic to the needs of the people, and not an election between what system are we to use. We are still not discussing in Venezuela the possibility that the oil income is managed directly by its citizens. So we are really de facto changing communist dictators over and over. Any country that has an income where the government receives a direct income of over 4% directly in its pocket, making it independently wealthy, does doesn't need a citizen for anything, is a de facto communist country, no matter who is in charge. So I would like to uh, question here, when are we going to put a real alternative on the table? Thanks. You know what? The other day somebody was complaining because of the discussion of uh, health care insurance in the state and uh, in this country, and they said, you know how much I envy you. Oh, if we could have that kind of debate in our country. We could be discussing those issues, ideological issues. And I totally agree that uh, it's us, us, all of us sitting here, the ones that have to put that on the table and start talking about which model of development we believe should be put in place. But we are, I think we cannot uh, mistake what we're talking here. This is not bad policies. This is not even ideological extremes in left and right. That's not the dimension in which we are moving. This is not left and right. This is democracy and authoritarianism, which is much worse. And we have to understand that that's what's at stake in Venezuela right now. I mean, people's private property is taken away. Media are being closed. Journalists are persecuted. The church, unions, anybody that wills to dissent, which is not... With all the problems we had before, of corruption, of populism, of demagogy, everything we had before, cannot be compared to what we're living today. And uh, I think we have to understand it's a discussion of other order, in my opinion. Another question right here. Could you speak into it a little bit more? Maybe it takes a second. Okay, speak up a little bit into the microphone. You want? That's fine. You can just speak speak into the microphone. It'll work. It'll work. Just speak and it'll kick in. Go ahead. My name is Craig Olson. I'm retired from the State Department, and I just uh, would like you to uh, thank you very much for your presentation, by the way, and I'd just like you to uh, tell us a little bit about Sumati. Um, what do you do? Uh, who is your membership? Uh, what is your funding, and how free are you to operate? I mean, you're here now. You're a co-founder of Sumati. You're here now, so there must be a little bit of freedom still allowed. But could you elaborate on that, please? Thank you. I love that question. Thank you very much. I would answer like one volunteer told me the other day. Sumate is a way of living. <laughs> it's, it's based on values, on sharing values and sharing dreams. And, and we are a civic movement that promotes democracy, citizen participation, and we are very much involved in, in promoting free and fair elections. We have 
thousands of volunteers that show up when we have big events and we have uh, 15 to 1,700, closer to 1,700 that have um, as volunteers, all volunteers, responsibilities throughout the country. So we have a true structure that has presence in all 24 states and in 187 counties that account for more than 80% of the population. And uh, we carry out all kinds of programs from citizen education, um, workshops, uh, distribution of materials door to door. We have uh, conferences. We have radio programs. We have, uh, in a way, to, to organize and empower citizens to understand they have rights and duties and to exercise them. Uh, it has been increasingly difficult to, to work under these circumstances. In my case, I, I was banned from leaving the country during three years, and uh, I have five criminal investigations going on. And uh, many of our volunteers, well, just last month, uh, our volunteer, she's a coordinator. She's a coordinator in, the, in Guarico State, those Venezuelans here, here know how difficult that state is. Uh, Governor William Lara came to her house, a small farm, and the small farm was taken away. She could only keep her house and uh, all her family, that's all her family had. And um, I, I called her immediately to offer support, and I was really worried because the previous Sumate coordinator in Huarico used to have two, old, two, two gas stations, and they were taken away four years ago. So I asked her if she was, you know, we would understand if she decided to take a step back and, and you know, have a little lower profile. And she answered, Maria Corina, don't insult me. This has given me and my family more reasons to keep working in Sumate, and, and we won't, won't lower our head. So that's the kind of strength, force, and passion and determination that you see throughout Venezuela, and that's the reason why I'm hopeful. Uh, regarding resources, we are desperate. Desperate. That's the only term I can use. Um, less than 1% of our sources come from abroad, from international cooperation. We have 21 offices throughout the country. We have to pay only for two of them, but some of our the people that used to support us in the last uh, months their companies have been closed or nationalized or have left the country, and they're not helping anymore. So we are at the stage that we need your support in all ways, in many ways. Moral support is always welcomed. We hope we get some moral support, too. <laughs> is, is, is that okay? I, I, did I leave anything out? Your question? The freedom to operate. You have, like, the Spada de Amocles here all the time no it's uh they they have come to our sword offices of Damocles, huh? the sword of Damocles. the sword <laughs> and um the tax uh, revenue uh stopped and stayed uh, over 6 months in our offices you feel some surveillance but uh there there are many many other organizations and many other people that are working along this line, so we, we support each other, even though sometimes we feel very lonely. We feel very lonely because we think the international community has turned their backs on us, especially Latin American countries. Next question. Question right there. Uh, 
Pas ça non plus. Bon, yeah, now it works. Thank you very much. Yes, my name is Hugues Rousseau. I'm the uh, political minister, counselor at the Canadian Embassy. Thank you very much for that very informative uh, uh, presentation you made. Uh, I was interested in the last thing you mentioned about uh, being ignored a little bit by the international community. So I would be very interested in knowing your own personal beliefs about uh, Mr. Chavez's influence in the region and how much of that can spread, let's say, to other countries such as uh, Bolivia or Ecuador or, or, or maybe even Brazil. Thank you. You know what? Ten years ago, when the campaign was happening, some people... Uh, I, I was in university in, in a conference, and, and, and some people were warning about the risks of a process of dismantling institu democratic institutions in Venezuela could take place. And I remember the, the reaction of all the people present there was, that's impossible. It is impossible. Venezuelan history and trajectory and democratic values are there in our you know, society's ADN and DNA, and, and, and that won't happen. And look where we're standing right now. I'm impressed because I hear that in other countries, in other societies throughout Latin America. That would never happen to us. And the fact is that when you have a society in which you have a weak institutional framework, weak institutions with big sectors that feel and have been excluded politically, economically, and socially for years, and you have a populist message that is the recipe for a process like this taking place. It is happening in Bolivia, it is happening in Ecuador, it is happening in Nicaragua. And it's happening in other uh, countries, not in our hemisphere. So, you know, regarding President Chavez interfering in other countries, just take his words. I mean, it's, it's all around the, the, the region. Even with this country, I, there, there are groups in Puerto Rico that have been funded to have, um, how do you say, in English, how do you say, secession? Secession of Puerto Rico, and it's it's known. So um, I have nothing. I don't have any problem with helping in, with through international cooperation in other countries. But it's uh, it's hard for us to understand that we're giving free oil to the people in London, in New York, and Boston when Venezuelan people uh, do not have electricity or water. That's that is something that is criminal. And uh, regarding international community. Um, last year, President Lula came to Venezuela, and he was asked what he thought about uh, President Chavez. And he said, President Chavez is the best president Venezuela has had in the last century. A couple days later, I was on TV and on, on a program in an interview, and they asked me what I thought about his remark. And I said, I totally agree with President Lula. I totally agree. He's the best president Venezuela has had for Brazil. Ten years ago, Ten years ago, the trade balance between Venezuela and Brazil was one-to-one. -one. Today, it's ten-to-one in favor of Brazil. Brazilian companies get all the deals without bids in construction and oil, as you know. And Venezuelan private sector is being destroyed. So, you know, when you have somebody like uh, Spain Secretary of State visit Venezuela in June, two days after 31 radio stations had been closed, And he went there, he got a oil deal, he got some money paid to Santander Bank because their bank, their branch in Venezuela was nationalized. Just before going to the airport, he gave a press conference. He said, what do you mean there's a problem with democracy in Venezuela? What do you say there's a problem with freedom of speech? I'm giving a press conference. So you see, this degree of cynicism hurts and makes it really hard for us to, to do our job back there. We don't want the international community to solve Venezuelan problems. We have to solve them ourselves. But don't make it harder. 
Don't make it harder. Right there. Peter Whitney, uh, Duke University. Uh, a few months ago, uh, Mayor Ledesma of Caracas was here, and he told us the story. He went on a hunger strike later. Uh, he told us that he does schools, police, fire, the normal roles of a mayor, those have all been taken from him. So my, I have two questions. One, has that happened uh, for, in other uh Mayor, two other mayors, and two, how's he doing? Did he end his hunger strike, and did Sumate get involved? Thank you. Well, not even that. Even his office was taken. He has not been able to, to put one foot on his office, even though he was elected. Um, uh, all other governors, but not only governors in the opposition, and that is important to, put in, to, to understand, even governors that are on the party of the president have, have been seeing how the the the, the services and the competencies that had been decentralized are being recentralized. Ports, airports, schools, health system and hospitals, and um, how do you say peajes? When, when you're paying this, the tolls, the tolls, which is a source of funding for the regional uh, authorities. So um, even the Situado Constitucional, which is a proportion of the budget that by law, by the Constitution, should go to governors and mayors, is not going down in the way it should. And um, so ac actually it, it's weakening the, 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 the authority of, of these elected officials. And uh, um, citizens are, are very concerned about this, and protests have been keep on, uh, going on. Uh, Rich, Richard Blanco, who is a concejal, a very important uh, member of Ledesma's team, is in prison. He's in prison right now. For, for protesting in the street. So, I mean, the, the, the repression process has been toughening as we speak throughout the country. Take a question in the back. Yeah, right there. No, oh, over there, right there. Hello, my name is Robert Stromberg. I'm with NDI, National Democratic Institute. And I don't want to uh, invite... Um, sort of wanton commentary, but I think there's room for some comment and a lot of need for investigation outside of this room and beyond today. To what extent do you feel or believe or know that the policy of insecurity, that the insecurity on the street, personal insecurity, and the lack of, of, of addressing that has to do with the political agenda? It is a tough question uh, because, as you say, in order to answer it responsibly, I, I, I needed to have much more information. I would only say that uh, a former member, former vice president, once wrote in an article, an opinion piece signed by him, that he believed that a certain degree of insecurity was good for the process. Um, the fact is that the, 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 the level of fear, because personal insecurity in Venezuela makes a lot of people paralyze, stop, and not act even politically to demand accountability from the government. The other consequence that we've been talking about is that such huge crime rates can also be a great facade for political harm. If somebody, God forbids, in our group, is killed or is kidnapped, Everybody would say, well, 
I mean, that's statistically, that's perfectly possible. So it's very scary. It's very scary. My belief is they lost control of it. If it wasn't a strategy, they lost control of it. There is an estimated of over eight, and, and, and look, this figure, I will not put it ever in a slide because I have no proof. But uh, in, the, in the news, in the last months, there are estimates of over 8 million illegal arms in Venezuela. So imagine the potential of that. Nevertheless, when people ask, say, talk about illegal arms, I say, I think I fear more the legal ones. So Vicente Rangel. Yeah, we'll take a question here and then there. Yeah. Right here in the aisle, please. Mark Sullivan with Congressional Research Service. I have a couple uh, quick questions. Uh, one, I know at one point there was some legislation being considered in Venezuela to restrict the uh, funding that uh, NGOs in the country could receive. Um, could you tell us the status of that, and is there, you know, essentially a stigma for uh, among NGOs for receiving a funding from, particularly from the U.S. government? And then also, uh, you mentioned the, uh, well, you mentioned uh, the electoral law was recently changed. Could you tell us what you think uh, the outlook is for the legislative elections next year, uh, based on? the change in the electoral law. Can I tell you what the, the results? No, what, the, <gasps> what, you, what you think uh, will happen in terms of the elections coming up, given that the, elect, the, the rules of the game seem to be changing inter- mm-hmm. electorally. Well, if I knew that second part, I think I'll be in New York and not here right now <laughs> doing some other business. Okay. Uh, regarding international cooperation law, it's been um, debated in, in the last four years. Um, it, sometimes they stop talking about it and they bring it up. They did at the beginning of this year. And actually what it proposes is that there will be, uh, actually the law says that there will be a reglement, a reglement, a, a, reg, a regulation, a future regulation done by the president in which that regulation will say what are the, the requisites in order to be accepted uh, in, a, in a database in order to 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 able to get international cooperation, uh, so the president will decide which are the requirements and who people actually get into that database. Um, and uh, you, once you receive international cooperation, you are subject to all kind of audit from the people. That means that anybody can come and uh, go into your books, go into your operation, and even uh, in the decisions you've made at the board level and so on. So basically, basically, if we approve this law, it means that. Most NGOs, and not only NGOs, unions, church, and religious groups, and so on, will stop uh, receiving support from abroad. And um, regarding the elections, uh, I think it is a huge opportunity, but I think it should be addressed in a totally different, with a totally different strategy. You have to tell the truth to citizens. You cannot think that people are going to go and vote just because you tell them the process is perfect. I always tell the story that happened, what happened to me in Bobare, in, in a very rural and poor place in, in Marquisimeto a year and a half ago, when I was going to give a speech and get, you know, there were like 75 peasants and, uh, listening, and um, one woman stopped me and said, look, Maria Corina, if you're going to tell me that everything is perfect, that we have to trust the system, that we have to vote, and so, 
I'll go home because that's probably what's happening in your voting station in Caracas where you live. I'm going to tell you what happens here. And she started saying, my neighbor voted four times before he has four IDs. My sister, when she went and voted, was this guy with this huge arm looking how she voted. And my daughter was told that if she voted against the government, she would lose her mission. So she, she did vote for the government. So either we find out ways in which we can confront this, but don't tell me everything is perfect. So we have to develop a narrative that engages people to look at it as a struggle. Struggle for freedom, struggle to fight, but never undermining the level of the obstacles. Because if we do that, we won't be able to overcome them. Very good point. We have time for just a couple more questions. Uh, we'll take uh, that question in the back, uh, right there, yes. Thank you so much, Maria. I very you, much admired your work. Could you speak up just a little bit into the microphone? Here it is? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you again. And my name is Nancy Menges. I'm with the Center for Security Policy and run their Latin American program there. Um, some some uh, people in the policy community here believe that the United States should take a harder line against Venezuela because Venezuela is actively working against the interests of the United States by uh, supporting the FARC in Colombia, uh, becoming a major transshipment point for drugs, and by bringing Iran into the hemisphere. There's now a resolution, a bipartisan resolution, brought by two Congress people uh, to make uh, Venezuela a state sponsor of terror. And though that's unlikely to happen, um, what that would mean is that we would no longer buy oil from Venezuela. And my question is, if we were to do that, and you know, that Venezuelan oil only represents a small percentage of the oil that we consume... Um, how would that affect uh, Chavez and the Venezuelan public? Well, that's a huge question. Um, I'll start by saying that I believe this country is a great society because of the values it represents. And I think that internationally, if you want to be a true leader, first of all, you have to be consistent, consistent with your values. And I believe that it's not necessarily happening today with U.S. policy, not only towards different countries in Latin America, but to the rest of the world. There are certain countries that are probably, even in a worse situation in terms of democratic institutions than Venezuela, but they're moving in the right direction. I believe those countries should be encouraged. I believe those countries should be open and, 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 re, and, and how do you say, reforzado, reforce, reinforce what they are doing. There are other countries that are moving in the different uh, directions, such as Venezuela. Venezuela is being less and less democratic every day. I believe countries such as the States, such as Brazil, such as Canada, such as Europe, should be firm in letting the world know what those values, that the values they stand for and what's happening in, in, in those countries. If you want to be consistent and you are against re-election, you have to be re against re-election in Venezuela and Colombia. And I think that's the kind of behavior that uh, Latin American society would appreciate. I believe it's a big mistake that there is a third re-election in Colombia because I think it's a terrible precedent. 
And I believe that probably President Uribe wouldn't be able to do this if it wasn't for President Chavez, who is uh, a reason to have more, uh, how do you say, coercion, 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 and, and inside, and strength inside, having the enemy outside. Um, so I think what's going on in Venezuela should be addressed firmly in terms of values, because we feel very lonely. We feel that the international community has turned their back on us. And the legitimacy, and legitimacy, which is the name of the game for President Chavez, is being given and reinforced and increased by the performance and the actions of many international actors. I believe that blocking Venezuelan oil, uh, Venezuelan oil today, 78, 74% of what we export comes to the states, and you are right, only 94 of, an, of the imports in, of oil in this country come from Venezuela. So it would definitely harm us. The problem is that it will probably harm more Venezuelan citizens than the Venezuelan government. And it would create uh, a huge resentment against the international community. And I believe that's not what we need. Uh, so I, I, I think it would be a huge uh, mistake. Okay, let's just take the last two questions at a time and then uh, your, your answer from there and from... From there, we'll start over here, please. My name is Frank Lennox at Meridian International Center. Uh, quickly, what is your vision? What, what, from your telescope, tell me what you think that Venezuela will look at like five years from now. And if there's major change, what will be the mechanism of that change? And let's take a question from Norm uh, Bailey as well in front here. Norman Bailey, Institute of World Politics. In recent years, a number of governments in Latin America, Ecuador, Peru, Argentina, and others, have been overthrown by civil society movements. Uh, given the situation you've described, uh, plus one thing you didn't mention, the largest inflation, highest inflation rate in, in uh, the hemisphere, uh, what's the problem? Why do, when, are the, when are the people going to rise up and overthrow this uh, regime? Uh, I asked that question, uh, a, a person visiting a very uh, Venezuelan political scientist was visiting this country. And he answered, because we have become un país de esclavos. A country Speak of for himself. <laughs> I, 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 I know, but I don't think it's true. Uh, I think these processes are very complex. Uh, I, I'm sure you're all aware that Baclav Havel was in the, in the hospital like two or three months before the regime came down and he was asked, you know what he thought what would happen? And he said, well, no, not less than two or three years. I mean, this is a medium term. So, you know, there are sometimes things happening that people don't realize and don't realize how they brought up. Social processes are very complex. And I don't think Venezuela is a country of slaves. On the contrary, we liberated other countries few centuries ago. We were not expecting this to happen. We, as I say, we took democracy for granted, and we didn't realize how much you have to work every day in order to defend freedom. And we're learning it the hard way. But once we achieve it, and we will, I'm sure we will value it much more. And for next generations, we'll transfer that lesson. Um, regarding uh, what's going to be my country in five years, what I want them to be, what I think it will be. I think it will be what we'll make of it. I think we're, we are having 
huge problems that I did not mention here regarding organized crime, drug trafficking, and other kinds of terrible maladies that are even harder to overcome. So I believe we're going to face a destroyed oil sector. We're going to face a country armed with huge violence, frustrated, and, uh, uh, and, and, and polarized. Uh, the private sector has been literally destroyed. Uh, infrastructure is in the floor. Uh, but we have new generations that have decided and understand that in order to have a democracy, in order to make it sustainable, we have to take care of the poor, and we have to have the most talented, the better prepared, and the most honest people handling and directing our country. So I hope that we'll be in the first steps of making that a reality. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Please join us upstairs for a sandwich uh, luncheon. Thank you.